Welcome to this edition of the JNNP podcast. My name is Colin Mahoney and I'm the JNNP podcast editor. Today we're discussing the recent review on the connection between traumatic brain injury and dementia, understanding neurodegeneration after traumatic brain injury, from mechanisms to clinical trials in dementia. Joining me now to discuss their paper is Dr. Neil Graham and Professor David Sharp from the Department of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. Professor Sharp is also an Associate Director of the UK Dementia Research Institute. So a very warm welcome to you both. Your recent review comes at a time of increased awareness of the interaction between traumatic brain injury and dementia, although many people may still think of traumatic brain injury as a, as a rather static event. I might start by asking you, Dr. Graham, what it's known regarding the epidemiology of dementia after a head injury. So the, the epidemiology is really interesting, actually, and I think it reflects a change in how we now think about traumatic brain injuries. The, the sort of historical view has always you know, was that you had a sort of static hit that, that might sort of produce some cognitive deficits that would remain sort of stable or perhaps recover to some extent over time. But there have been a, a collection which have now accumulated of really large epidemiological studies that suggest that traumatic brain injury increases the risk of dementia and that that risk is elevated for a very long time after the initial injury. And so the way that, that people increasingly think about traumatic brain injury is that it seems to be some sort of trigger for a progressive neurodegenerative process. And there are some complexities in interpreting the epidemiological studies, but I think what seems to be relatively robust is that traumatic brain injuries increase dementia risk by around about 1.5 times. Okay, so um, growing evidence. Just trying to get back to your paper, you've really nicely detailed the pathophysiological processes that occur, particularly early on after a head injury occurs, but also as things become more chronic. Professor Sharp, I wonder if you could just talk us through uh, the pathological changes and their link with subsequent neurodegeneration and dementia. So one of the interesting things is that very shortly after injury, you know, in the first few minutes and hours, um, there are changes that can lead to the kind of typical protein abnormalities that we're used to looking at in the context of, of neurodegenerative conditions. So, for example, you can see the accumulation of uh, abnormal hyperphosphorylated tau, amyloid um, abnormalities and TDP43 protein abnormalities very shortly after injury. And they can persist in some individuals into the chronic phase. So, for example, if we consider chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, so where there's been much focus um, recently, particularly in the States, um, the characteristic findings there are of a tauopathy that in some ways is quite similar to the tau pathology seen in Alzheimer's disease, but has a different spatial distribution. Uh, so you see it in the depth of the sulci and in a, in a perivascular distribution. And, and also particularly within astrocytes, as opposed to primarily with, within neurons. So then the question, what's the mechanism by which trauma might trigger uh, the development of these abnormal um, proteins? And I think that there's accumulating evidence, really. This is a, quite an active area of research, that axonal injury, so the kind of biomechanical factors that damage uh, axons and axonal transports can generate the kind of environment that uh, allows the development of these abnormal proteins. So one considers um, abnormal tau. Sort of hyperphosphorylated tau can develop because of damage to microtubules. Um, obviously, tau is associated with microtubules in the in the normal axon. Uh, but when the axons are stretched and damaged, that can uh, change the local environment, lead to hyperphosphorylation. And the, the idea is that that may then seed a progressive process. And obviously, in the dementia field more widely, the idea that proteinopathies can result from a, a prion-like spread 
um, around the brain. It's quite a prominent hypothesis. And in the context of TBI, that seems also to be the case. Um, so if one produces protein abnormalities by experimental injury, um, you can then show quite clearly how those abnormal proteins can spread transsynaptically around the brain, but also um, that you can transmit that in experimental models from uh, one animal to the next, showing that TBI can trigger a, a, a spreading prion-like proteinopathy. Yeah, so it's yet again, the prion-like spread uh, is coming to the fore in, um, in traumatic brain injury, as it has done in other um, neurodegenerative illnesses. I guess as a clinician, and many many of our listeners are clinicians, we might pose the, the question of what are the clinical features that we should be looking for in those individuals who've suffered a head injury that might suggest uh, they may convert to some post-traumatic neurodegenerative illness. Are there specific clinical features that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, perhaps I'll take that one as well. I mean, I think this is a really challenging area and actually motivated us to write the the paper, really. I think there's certainly been attempts to define a specific kind of clinical phenotype to particularly chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And I think one of the things that holds us back in understanding the links and also identifying the presence of of a link is, is the absence of a very clearly defined clinical phenotype. Obviously, if one considers different types of, of dementia, they've usually been defined because of their clinical phenotype initially, and then the kind of underlying pathology has been kind of elucidated, really. So the, the Boston uh, group under Anne McKee have really driven attempts to do this, and they've produced very beautiful work showing the staging of tau pathology after CT, and also attempts to define the clinical um, features of that. And that includes many things that we would routinely consider, for example, cognitive problems with memory impairment or attentional deficits, dis-executive problems, also associated neuropsychiatric issues like aggression, irritability, and uh, and the development of suicidality. The the real problem is that these things largely overlap with the direct effects of, of head injury. So I think that the core, the key question is how we can differentiate the immediate and lasting kind of, if you like, static effects of the injury from the effects of an underlying progressive process that might be superimposed on that. And I think what we've argued in the paper really is that it's actually very difficult to do that on purely clinical grounds. Uh, perhaps not impossible, but very challenging. I think if you're sitting in clinic, what I would advise is switching perhaps from a, a kind of TBI-focused way of viewing this to thinking more along the lines of a, as, a, a, as a dementia doctor and to start to look for um, the tempo of the history. So uh, whether changes are accelerating or cognitive psychiatric problems are becoming progressively more pronounced. Also looking for the specific features of other types of dementia. So looking for specific features of Alzheimer's, for example, spatial uh, disorientation, looking for ancillary features of Parkinson's or MND that would give you a a clinical clue that there was something unexpected and additional to the uh, direct effects of, uh, of traumatic brain injury. But I think in the end, what we need is better diagnostic tools and better biomarkers actually to allow us to disentangle that and so what we make a case for in the paper is the need to kind of broaden out our repertoire of kind of diagnostic investigations I suppose to allow us to get a handle and identify those patients who are who are likely to progress. 
Right. So in, in many ways, the kind of clinician listening to this should really be applying the, the skills that they already have in, in dealing with patients with cognitive impairment. And I suppose how you finished off that, that answer really brings on to the next point. Your paper also it really does provide a very nice overview of existing and potential biomarkers, which may improve our ability to detect and monitor those with possible post-traumatic neurodegeneration. So I might start by asking you to talk us through some of the, specifically the MRI changes that we might expect to see in this group of patients. Yeah, so I mean, I, I might sort of take that one. I think um, you know, there's a number of things that, that you can do right now. You know, with the with the MRI tools that you know that are internationally uh, very widespread to look for neurodegeneration after injury. And I think I think that you know, the first thing is to, to be aware that you're looking for for the changes, particularly atrophy on a volumetric T1 MRI. And it, it can be quite subtle because it tends to be very widespread throughout the white matter, particularly involving central structures like the, the corpus callosum. So whereas in Alzheimer's, some of the, the atrophic changes can be, can be very sort of clear and you know, you know where to look for them in the medial temporal lobe, a more global atrophic process may be less obvious if a neuroradiologist hasn't specifically been primed to look for it. But I think our experience is that often in retrospect with people in the chronic phase of injury who are having a progressively atrophic process, it can be evident to the plain eye if you look very carefully for it. But then I think moving sort of one level beyond that, our experience has been that, that putting volumetric T1 MRIs through a sort of computerized process to quantify very sensitively atrophy rates and changes in the brain can give you very, very clear indications that there's abnormal atrophy occurring. And I don't think we're, we're a long way from being able to do that in the clinic. But, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, it's certainly a tool that's very widely used in the clinical trial setting. I suppose asking another follow-up on that is, you know, people, uh, there's been a lot of publications over the years about diffusion tensor imaging. Has that had any practical use in your clinics? Yeah, perhaps I'll, I'll come in there. So we've, over the last decade, I suppose, published uh, and investigated a lot using diffusion tensor imaging. So I think that's particularly relevant in this case because our hypothesis really is that the, the axonal injury that's produced at the time of, of impact, so very shortly after the injury, is one of the key factors that's driving um, this, this progressive pathology. We see primarily problems within the white matter. We see kind of significant levels of progressive atrophy within the white matter. And we see that in areas that are damaged from axonal injury. So what diffusion tensor imaging gives us is a, is a more specific measure of axonal disruption. Um, so the, the typical measure is to look at something called fractional anisotropy, um, a measure of the alignment of the fibres, and that gets disrupted following uh, um, traumatic brain injury and is a sensitive measure of axonal damage that we've found to be very useful um, in terms of quantifying the location and also the extent of the, the damage. In contrast to many other, I suppose, experimental kind of imaging measures, particularly functional MRI measures, it can be used at the individual level because the, the, the signal to noise ratio is, is good enough. And, uh, and certainly in our hands, you know, we have protocols for running this at the individual level and we find it very informative, uh, particularly in those cases where we're not sure whether there is any underlying damage. So it's not uncommon to find scans that look normal on CT and normal on standard MRI, but to find significant levels of abnormality on diffusion imaging and we see that probably in about 15% of our 
uh, of our cases that we've we've investigated. So I would I, I would strongly argue that there's a case um, to be made for the inclusion of diffusion sensor imaging in clinical assessment. And the barriers are not to do with the acquisition of the data. So actually, modern scanners can you know almost all do diffusion sensor imaging. It's really in terms of the kind of processing of it um, and the generation of quantitative MRI measures, which uh, you know is something that you know is not routinely done generally, and uh, and in my view should be done much more. Yeah, and, and, and so we have, you know, we have a sense of the, the, the sort of relationship between uh, axonal injury measured with diffusion tensor imaging and progressive neurodegeneration. I think what's less clear is some of the other kind of, of sort of injury severity from imaging that people may be used to doing. I certainly think in a clinical setting, it's useful to have blood sensitive sequences such as SWI to look for the vascular injury after traumatic brain injury. But precisely how those measures relate to long term progressive neurodegeneration, I think is less clear. Yeah, just a, a kind of taxonomic point, I suppose. I, I would argue that the techniques like susceptibility weighted imaging are telling us about diffuse vascular injury. You know, they're essentially showing us perivenular hemocytorin deposition because of you know, subtle damage to the, the venous system. Whereas diffusion tensor imaging and you know, other diffusion measures are telling us something more directly about white matter microstructure and telling us something directly about diffuse axonal injury. And I think there's been a, quite a lot of confusion in the way perhaps people think about that. But I think there's, there's value in, in sort of differentiating what it is that we think we're identifying with these measures. And, and also you mentioned um, kind of a more emerging biomarkers in your paper. You talk a bit about fluid biomarkers and novel molecular imaging techniques. And I, I think this, again, is, a, is an area of rapid growth and other degenerative brain illnesses. Could you maybe give a comment on what potential both fluid or molecular imaging biomarkers you see emerging in this area? Yeah, so, so on the fluid side, there's actually a large amount of work going on right at the moment on very big cohorts that have been collected in North America and Europe, where you know, a lot of work's being done on CSF, but also blood, so serum um, uh, biomarkers. Um, so we've been particularly interested in a biomarker called neurofilament lights at NFL, which has been used, as you know, quite widely in a, a range of, of conditions. You know, we think this is likely to be a sensitive but non-specific you know, marker of progressive pathology. Certainly, it's, it's very, very elevated initially after injury. But we found that in, in, in some subjects, it remains elevated in the, in the chronic phase. There's also been lots of interest in a, a range of other markers, for example, amyloid and tau kind of measurements, particularly in the CSF, but also other measures in the, in the blood and serum, such as uh, UCHL1, which I think in the end will be used acutely to give us an indication of whether there has been a significant injury when we're not really sure. But also, I, I would imagine in, in the longer term, looking to give us an identification of, of subjects that are likely to be developing progressive problems. I, th yeah. I think, you know, returning to the epidemiology, which is messy, partly that's because oftentimes people don't really know what happened in terms of the injury severity, the, the dose of the neurological insult. And I think these, these emerging biomarkers give us a, a much more robust handle on what actually happened, whether there really was a brain injury. So you can kind of reduce some of the heterogeneity, be much clearer about what you're dealing with, and then I think have a, a better understanding of the, the kind of neurological sequelae of, of injury. I think the use of positron emission tomography, uh, PET and SPECT, is potentially very informative. You know, largely not used, I think, in the evaluation of TBI, but is of increasing value, I would argue. And I kind of split it into a few different areas, uh, one of which is the evaluation of proteinopathies you know, in a similar way to, say, Alzheimer's disease. You know, we have good ways to uh, assess amyloid pathology now, and they can be applied into traumatic brain injury to identify the abnormal accumulation of amyloid after TBI. 
and critically, I think we um, there's a range of um, pet ligands for tau pathology. We've recently published a paper on fluorotauspir in science translation medicine, which shows the value of of this ligand in terms of picking up abnormal tau signal many many years after injury. And I think the application of, of, of those in the context of patients that you're worried are going to be um, deteriorating in the end will give us specific molecular signals of, uh, of the underlying pathology. We also, we haven't mentioned inflammation, but you know, TBI is a good way to trigger chronic long-term inflammatory changes. Um, so we see microglial activation that's there many years and decades after injury, particularly within the white matter. And the reason for that chronic activation isn't entirely clear, but we can pick that up with, uh, with pets, so particularly TSPO, pet-like and the, the, the interpretation of, of, of that inflammation is, is unclear, but I, I think right at the moment in, in the field of dementia generally, you know, understanding the role of this chronic inflammation in relation to disease progression is one of the kind of areas of tremendous focus. And I think actually you know, that, those, that kind of work should be applied into traumatic brain injury because we have significant underlying damage, but then superimpose neuroinflammatory changes which are linked to the development of uh, neurodegenerative abnormalities. So I think we can begin to unpick those clinically by the more routine and more widespread use of these kind of molecular imaging methods. I think that's a, an excellent overview of the, the kind of pathophysiological challenges um, that are in this area. I suppose uh, this brings me to my last question and, and probably most relevant for our patients is um, you do spend some time setting out a vision from embarking on clinical trials and post-traumatic uh, neurodegeneration. And as with other degenerative brain diseases, there's been many, many hurdles in getting to clinical trials. So I just wonder if you could give us some of your insights into what have, what have been the major hurdles in getting to these trials and what future strategies we need to be able to run feasible clinical trials in this area? I mean, so I think from a trials perspective in, in neurodegeneration, this is a huge opportunity. And I think that's one of the, the really exciting things about traumatic brain injury is that you have a timed neurological insult that the portion of patient increases uh, neurodegenerative risk. And you have a great therapeutic window, I think, to intervene really early before significant kind of neuropathology has developed, certainly progressive neuropathology. And, you know, in the same way that I think the Alzheimer's community is looking backwards to try and treat people who are, uh, have you know, either mild cognitive impairment or perhaps biomarker positive pre-symptomatic patients. There's an opportunity early after injury to, to potentially treat. But I think to do that, you, know, you need to have a number of things. I think you need to have a really robust understanding of the biomarker changes after injury. So to, to map out in detail within individuals what the sort of volumetric changes are in the natural history of disease, I think it'd be very helpful to, to be able to better untangle the heterogeneity uh, after traumatic brain injury and try and work out which individuals are most likely to have neurodegeneration. And I think there's a great role there for, for some of the biomarkers in terms of fluid biomarkers and imaging like DTI that we've, we've talked about. And I, and I think the last part, part of the puzzle, I think once you have those pieces of information, is about kind of how you interact with the drug regulators. And I don't think this is specific to traumatic brain injury, but you know, we need uh, good, acceptable uh, outcome measures for clinical trials. Uh, and our argument in the paper is that you know, a reduction in atrophy rate after injury would be a valid and meaningful uh, clinical outcome measure. 
Uh, and I know there are lots of conversations going on in other conditions such as Huntington's uh, and, and the AD community and the genetic causes of Alzheimer's to, to develop a, a framework whereby those would be acceptable in terms of drug development. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think any of those hurdles are insurmountable, but I think that big work that's going on at the moment in terms of characterizing the sort of natural history after injury to really work out what those biomarker trends are is going to be absolutely critical to, to moving forward to the next step of clinical trials. Okay, well, look, I think this is a really exciting area of research, and I think your paper offers a really important overview on this link between head injury and dementia, and certainly presses the case to think of traumatic brain injury as a potentially progressive neurodegenerative illness, requiring the same development of robust biomarkers and clinical trials as we've seen in other degenerative brain illnesses. I want to thank my guests, Professor David Sharp and Dr. Neil Graham from the Department of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. Professor Sharp is also an Associate Director of the UK Dementia Research Institute. And uh, remind our listeners that the paper can be downloaded in full for free on the JNNP website now. Thank you. Thank you.